You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large Recode. You may know me as someone who's been posting an Instagram story every day while in quarantine, but no one's watching. Maybe I should do something other than sitting quietly and staring at my phone. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Kevin Sistrom, who has been here before, the co-founder and former CEO of Instagram. He and his co-founder, Mike Krieger, sold the company to Facebook in 2012 and left in 2018. And I wanted to have him on the show today to talk about some incredibly fascinating stuff he's doing with data and the coronavirus crisis. We're recording this on March 26th, so the numbers may change by the time we publish this. But you can find his latest work at Systrom.com. Kevin, welcome to Recode Decode again. Thanks for having me. Excited to be back. So you are in from San Francisco, right? You're broadcasting from home. Correct. Uh, from home, San Francisco. You got it. Great. Okay. I'm happy to be in DC. We like to tell people where we are because I usually do these things in person. Um, so let's get to talking about what you've been doing. It's really fascinating. A lot of people in tech have sort of posting all kinds of things, some of whom are qualified to do so, some of whom are just sort of uh, doing some on the sides. But this is something you're doing because around data, which I think is super interesting. And you were you had a lot of experience at Instagram about things that do go viral and why things happen. So talk a little bit about what you've been doing because it's getting a lot of attention, some of your predictions sure. and things like that. Yeah, I, I didn't think it was going to get much attention. But um, what happened was, uh, you know, a handful of weeks ago, I was sitting down and I was reading a bunch of news about the coronavirus. And I realized there were not that many analyses that felt thorough, that felt like they went deep and, and actually understood how these things grew. Um, so something triggered me because I was like, oh, I remember studying how epidemics grow back in the day when I studied how companies grow. Um, and there was this thing called the SIR model. It's not important how it works. It's not important what it is, other than to know it's used to model epidemic outbreaks. Um, and people were using that to model uh, how companies grow. Because how companies grow, usually by word of mouth, uh, it mirrors how epidemics can grow based on contacts between people. So I was like, you know, that's interesting. I've been doing a lot of data work in my spare time, and I have a fair amount of spare time these days. Um, so I was like, why don't I see if I can fit that model to what we're seeing in the real world? And after a couple tries and a couple tweaks, I was surprised to see a pretty good fit. And anyone who does data analysis knows just because you get a good fit doesn't mean you have something that predicts the future well. But I said, why don't I, why don't I dig in here and, and share it with some friends? So I did that. And my friends came back and were like, why don't you share this more broadly? And a confluence of things happened, but I decided that I was going to share it more broadly because I thought that the analysis I had seen out in the world didn't underscore how big this could actually get. And by taking that model, by fitting it using some technology that's not important, um, or it's not important what it is, it's actually very important technology, that I was able to share with people a, a glimpse of what might happen if we don't take action more quickly. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll also just say that part of this is just an interest in using data to manage to an outcome. To so, an outcome, right? Yeah. So at Instagram, I mean, everything we did was based on data. We collected data about how our products were growing, not just Instagram, the app, but say Instagram Direct or IGTV or Alive or, you know, and, and we'd figure out the science of making these things grow. So in this case, I said, well, why don't I apply that same science to uh, the epidemic. I, I'm not an epidemiologist. I know nothing about viruses. 
but data is data. So why can't I do the same thing I did at work? But I'm going to stop you for a second. What did you t- explain to what you t- were trying to look for at Instagram when you were trying to grow? Because this was a per- perfectly viral app, right? This is a right. word. It began as a word. As you know, I met you many, many years ago, but it began as a word of mouth app. You did very little marketing. What were you doing at Instagram? Why did you collect that much? I mean, obviously, we know Facebook collects a lot of data, but what was the uses of it from your perspective at Instagram? Well, I I like to say back when I ran Instagram, it was the strangest thing because we had a billion people using this thing every month, but I would only meet a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of them. And then a fraction of those people I would get to see in whether it was user tests or, you know, um, user testimonials, that kind of thing to actually understand how people were using it. So instead of just, you know, talking to a few people, you can collect data in mass and say, Okay, how are pe- what are the behavioral patterns in mass that uh, say whether or not a uh, an app is working for people? Like it, being able to have a, your finger on the pulse of the app to say, did we break something or not? I'll give you an example. Uh, back in September of I don't know what year, uh, we had just launched Stories. I could fact check this, but I, we had just la- launched Stories, and usage basically flattened. It was skyrocketing. And then out of nowhere, it flattened. And we got a big team together and we said, hey, go research this, figure out what's wrong. Did we break this? And I'll skip the long story and just say, we figured out that the decline was centered in a very specific region in the world, or or I should say not region, but a set of countries. And all of those countries had one thing in common, which they were in the Southern hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So by digging into the data, we were able to see it was con- this problem was concentrated in these countries, and we figured out the root cause, which was the school schedule is actually different in the Southern Hemisphere, and all the teens that loved using Instagram stories stopped using it because I think they were going out of school or coming into school. I can't remember which one it was. Mm-hmm. But my point is, if you use data in mass, you can look at it and say, hey, something's going wrong here. Let's diagnose it and fix it for people. And if you do that iteratively, you build a better product in the long run. So you're seeing these signals. So what did you do in that case? So in that case, we ended up doing nothing because it Mm -hmm. turns out people were just going back to school, right? Like it was was something that would naturally take its course. But like, for instance, Instagram Live, we would look at data and see, oh, wow, it's interesting. Those that don't get feedback from people, that don't get people who join, Mm -hmm. uh, stop using the product pretty quickly. So, okay, what are we going to do? We're going to focus on getting people to join these and so that you don't feel like you're broadcasting to no one. That's an example. But as this relates to the virus, a lot of these tools are tools that can be applied to anything. Data analysis is data analysis. Whether you're running a company or running a government or trying to diagnose where, um, where a virus is growing most quickly, you can apply data science. And I'll give you maybe an example here, which is you know, over the past few days, the rate of growth in the United States had slowed. And people thought maybe we had turned a corner. But if you back up, you see actually that that rate of change was dominated by a rate of change in a single region, New York. And if you look at all the other regions and, and get rid of New York, they're growing and they haven't slowed. So it allows you to ask yourself, instead of asking broad questions like how quickly is this growing, you can ask specific questions down in the, in, in the details of the problem, like where is this thing growing? How quickly is it growing and have we turned a corner? And so those same skills, whether you're running a company or just looking at data for, you know, an arbitrary system, they're the same. And so again, the, I'm not a doctor or an epidemiologist, yeah, so I don't I get that. You're just putting data in. So where did you get your data set? You know, when I, I put it up, a lot of people were asking you a ton of questions about yeah. your sourcing. I was, <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Talk a little bit about your, your the, the way you conducted and created this and what you've changed totally. uh, and some of the problems people had with you. So first thing I'll say is that all the data comes from official sources. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not someone who believes data without understanding where it came from either. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting, the second I put it up, people have this um, natural reaction to want to doubt the data. And I think some of that is, and I don't know if it's cognitive dissonance or what, but people want to believe everything's going to be okay. Yeah. So they try to find reasons to not believe the data. Because your message was, we're fucked. I think, I believe that's essentially. <laughs> I, I think I might have titled it differently. We can go back yeah. and look. But um, yeah. 
Uh, We're probably but, fucked. But here's here's actually what I'll say. Um, the data came from Wikipedia, which if you look in Wikipedia, they have a bunch of tables. Those tables then source every single data point. So on March 18th in New York City, there's a cell and it says account. And with that cell, it says a source. And you can go and take a look at a, you can go and take a look at that um, data point. But here's actually a better example. There's a site called, I believe it's covidtracker.com. Yep. They not only scrape uh, county health websites and state websites every single, I think it's like every few hours or something, and they collect the data point, but they actually take a screenshot of the site just as proof that they didn't scrape Got the wrong number. That. Or mm-hmm. what's cool is you can actually look at that trace and go back and make sure that the number was correct. So anyway, using some, you know, little HTML parsing and stuff, it's not actually important what it is. I was able to just collect that data in a table and then very quickly using some uh, some libraries in Python that are used for data analysis called uh, Pandas, um, I was able to graph charts fairly quickly and then share it with the world. Um, but yeah, people are fairly doubtful of data, especially when it insinuates that something's not going to go well. All right, so talk about what your results showed, right? Your first set, and then we'll go from there. Sure. The first results, which now seem like you know a year ago, even though I think it was about a week ago, showed that basically we were on a trajectory, at least in the United States. Like I know you probably have listeners from all around the world, but I focused on the United States just because that it was easier to do at the time. That we were basically headed to a place where either it was a by the way it was a bimodal distribution, which means either we were completely screwed. And we were going to reach the maximum limit of how many people would get this, or it would be cut off fairly quickly. But the chances that it were something in between were very, very low. And that's an interesting takeaway for this, right? Which is you either have an option to cut it quick, mm-hmm. but if you don't cut it quick, it basically expands and grows to everyone eventually. Right. And mm-hmm. that's a really important lesson as a as a policymaker. And you see some, you know, uh, some politicians, I think, got that message, not necessarily from me, but just in general from the experts quickly. And, and if you look in San Francisco, where, where we are, you know, London Breed decided to do this lockdown before anyone. early, early. Yeah. I mean, we had maybe hundreds of not even 100 cases when they did it. Um, I'd have to look. But, you know, New York, New York City, it took a couple days a later yeah. and they had thousands. Mm-hmm. So it was a week later. Yeah. Yeah. So um if you just back up for a second, again, the model's not perfect, but when it shows you that you're either going to get to everyone or you're going to get to a very small number, you realize you have a choice there. So then maybe separately, what I'll say is the model showed very clearly that we were in the beginning innings. And that, you know, I'm everyone has that friend who's who's the doomsday sayer, right? Mm-hmm. That goes around and says this is going to be way worse than anyone expects. But what frustrated me was usually I'm not that person. Usually I'm a person who's pretty tempered, but the data showed that, you know, people were freaked out by a thousand cases. I said to my friend the other day, I was like, remember when we freaked out about 10,000 cases nationally? Mm-hmm. Now you have New York City that has 20,000 as of last night, New York City, a single city. So uh, that's even the thing about exponential growth is no matter where you are on the curve, it still looks crazy and exponential. But if you zoom out, it actually, you realize we're in the beginning innings of this thing. So you asked what the model showed. It showed very clearly that this thing peaks, or at least it did back then. It showed it peaked around uh, early May. So, I mean, what's today's date? It's it's the end of March. Right. We're peaked. 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 Meaning the worst. Meaning the number of new cases were at their highest mm-hmm. mid-May, mm-hmm. which means you're halfway through. Right. Which implies that roughly early summer is when this thing comes down. And I'll close by saying this uh, on this particular point, which is that although it said this, that doesn't mean we're going to get there. My mm-hmm. hope was by showing people what inaction does, we right. would take this action. Is without, without, with the action that was currently being. Exactly. Exactly. Right. The action that was currently being. So the thing that I'm working on now is then modeling in, okay, now that we know New York's lockdown, now that we know California's lockdown, now that we know these states have taken these actions, what should we expect to take place? And if you look at Italy, have you looked at all at, at the Italian data at all? It's super interesting. Not really. No, tell me. Tell me about it. Basically, think about the U.S. on kind of a supercharged trajectory. 
And then they lock down and they lock everything down. It took them a few days to realize we should not just lock down the northern part of Italy, but we should lock down everything and we should actually enforce it. Um, but they got there. And by and large, I think people generally followed it. And what you see is now about, I don't know, 10 to 14 days later in that range, you're seeing a dramatic drop off in the number of new cases. And that's because those people who got infected on that day before they locked down, they have to wait around. And basically, it's called an incubation period where it lies dor not dormant in your system, but it's not causing symptoms yet. Mm -hmm. And that takes a while. So there's a delay between when you slam on the brakes and you actually see the car start to stop. That's a different way of putting it. And you see that in the Italian data now. You actually see, you know, many days later, the brakes had been stopped, and then many days later, it's starting to slow. And you're going to see that in the U.S. too, I think, in the major uh, places where we've locked down. But my fear is that, two, well, two things. One, that we don't s slam on the brakes hard enough. Mm -hmm. You know, you're seeing all these stories about New Yorkers fleeing and bringing it with them to other places. That's yeah. a concern. And then secondly, that we let our foot off the brake too early because we get overconfident. Right. If you look at the Spanish flu of 1918, uh, it wasn't one flu. It was three massive waves over the course of about a year. That's what happens when you let the foot off the brake. When you get excited and you think you have this thing under control, and then all of a sudden everyone starts going back to work, et cetera. And I think it, uh, and it, and it screws the system. You end up seeing these massive waves again. So I want to make sure we avoid that. Yeah. All right. We're here with Kevin Sistrom. We're going to take a quick break now. When we get back, we're going to talk about what data he's going to look at now in terms of how he's going to keep doing this and a little bit about what he's doing now after having left Instagram when we get back. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're here with Kevin Sistrom. He's obviously the, the co-founder and former CEO of Instagram, but he's been doing a little data work around coronavirus. We're talking about that right now. So explain to me what, what prompted you? You're just interested in data, right? And what are you doing next with this? What, is this going to be a thing you're going to keep doing or, or what? So um, before all the coronavirus stuff hit, I was in the process of starting up you know, a process to do what's next, meaning start a company or, or, or build an organization of some kind. And I had a, a bunch of ideas and they were listed out. And then this happened and everyone sheltered in place and business basically ground to a halt, at least new business, you know? Sure. And while I could still work on those ideas, it felt more important to step back and ask myself, one, how can I help in this this larger situation? And two, like how is my time best used in a time when people aren't necessarily forming companies and getting together? And I just realized very quickly that like this was a moment that I thought I could pitch in and share one perspective. Now, you know, it's one perspective of many, and people should go find the experts and triangulate, you know, among many of them. But it felt like an interesting opportunity. Now, the why is like data, I find to be the most interesting way to make decisions. I'm fascinated with two parts of this. One is trying to predict the future. I think that's super interesting. And then two is based on what you think will happen in the future and having imperfect data and it's foggy, right? Like you don't quite know what's going to happen. How do you make the best decision possible? Those are two things that have been interesting to me, I think, throughout my business career and still are today. And both of those things applied to the coronavirus data. 
maybe the last thing I'll say on this is this is one of the first instances where I've seen an incredible resolution of data mm-hmm. on a thing that's happening now. Like sometimes you get researchers that collect data in, in the past, mm-hmm. and but now you can literally on a county level go and see how many cases exist in California on a county level, how many tests have been conducted, what's the positive rate of those tests, how many ICU beds are in these various hospitals. And you could do all sorts of work to help people understand what we're facing. And I thought that was just really unique. So I'm not sure where it'll go next. I honestly couldn't have predicted that I would create this, you know, uh, the small blog that I've started, but it's gained a little bit of a following and it's growing mm-hmm. and and so as long as people find at? it useful, I'll do it, you know? What do you, what, when you're saying, t- saying the future, one of the things is you're saying what looks like will happen if it sticks currently. How do you then put in all the variables now with the closings or testing or things like that? Are you, are you going to look at testing? Are you going to look at false positives? The other thing is people that may have had the illness not know it and have antibodies and stuff like that. How do you, is the problem the government isn't giving enough data or is there, is there enough good data out there? There is amazing data out there, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that you can predict the future. Think of it this way. If you have a thousand possible futures, mm-hmm. you know, in the real world, it's infinite, but a thousand possible futures, your job as a manager, whether you're you're someone who's, you know, in politics and you can make real decisions that affect people's lives, or even as a person to decide how many people is it okay to hang out with? How many people, you know, should I feel safe being around? Um, your job is to narrow that set of the future from a thousand possible futures mm-hmm. to maybe like 10. Right. And within those 10, you kind of have a weighting of those 10, the ones you think are more likely and the ones you think are less likely. And that's all I'm doing here is saying, here's the, here, here's the range of possible futures and here's where we're most likely going to hit based on the data so far. And there's this entire, um, and this is going to get nerdy for a second, but um, Please get nerdy. there's this entire field of statistics called Bayesian inference. And I got really interested in it because I read a couple books on it. And um, and it's basically, I, I'm going to oversimplify this and, and probably get it wrong. But the idea is you basically take data and you say, like, what is the system that most likely produced this data effectively? And that the way it's said differently, um, what is the you know curve of this virus that most likely produced the data that we're seeing out in the real world, knowing that it's noisy? And you get a range of values, and that's the range that I'm talking about. And I find that super interesting because you know you're not claiming you know the future, but you're claiming you see well. Well, the future where we only have a hundred thousand cases in the U.S. that's like a zero percent chance. It's definitely going to be more than that. Right. At the same time, you know, a world in which we have 327 million cases is also very unlikely because, you know, we have young people who don't seem to get this and and there's some amount of herd immunity that will be built at some point and so on and so forth. And policies, you know, people will lock down before it gets to that point. So again, like you can't foretell the future, but you can narrow it down. And using Bayesian inference um, and this library that I used called uh, PyMC3, it allows you to do that with data. And I was just like this, it, it was a confluence of reading a book and and seeing this opportunity and being like, ah, those three things together make sense right now. So what do you want to study next in this area? What do, what's the, what do you think is important that we try to bring data to pass here? Two things. Uh, one is the effect of interventions. So most of these systems assume a single... Uh, a single smooth path throughout time without any interventions. But it's actually fairly easy to introduce the idea of an intervention like a lockdown mm-hmm. or uh, cutting off air travel between states, say, domestic air travel. That's something that I think uh, could be really useful and I'm excited to share as a post uh, in the future. I'm not sure when it'll be in the next week or so. The second is this idea that the United States or, or China or or Spain doesn't have an infection. They have a series of infections, uh, some in the north, some in the south, some in the west, some in the east, right? Like in the U.S., when we talk about the U.S. in aggregate, it actually, it's, it's, it's too foggy. It's like, it, it's too hard to understand what's actually going on. So what I'm working on now is what if you just 
took the U.S. and broke it up into states and said, what if instead of modeling the U.S., I modeled the states individually? And then when you're done with that, you can just add up that prediction and then you get the prediction for the United States. I think that um, that only not not only provides you with more useful data, like if you live in California or Washington, D.C., you get a clearer picture of what's happening near you. But also at the federal level, you get a much clearer view about what's likely to happen in aggregate. And it's more accurate. Uh, it's just really hard to model things at a very uh, abstract level, like an entire country full of 300 million people. So those are the two things I'm excited about. And then eventually, I, I hope that I can stop writing about coronavirus and start writing about other things. Right. But right now, this feels like the most useful uh, uh, topic. And it also feels timely and it feels like people are interested. Um, so we'll see where that goes. But I mean, I'm open to suggestions. Well, I mean, I'm wondering, I want to finish this section about talking about coronavirus. And I want to find out what you're going to do next, what you're sure. kind of interested in doing next and what you think is important. You know, is there a way that you can model what, for example, around testing, whether it works? Because you don't know yet till you get the results, right? Whether whether more testing or more awareness or putting in any of the factors work. Is there a way to to, to look at testing in that regard? Because that's not really, there's not enough data around that yet. It's starting to get data around that. There are so many issues with the total case count right now, which is you might end up having, like, let's say it says there are 178 cases in San Francisco. I think that was the count last night. Um, there might be 500 cases, but maybe a portion of those decided not to get tested because they're fine. They're just at home. They don't feel great. Maybe a portion of those got or wanted to get a test but couldn't get a test. Maybe a portion of those got a test but it's somewhere in the pipeline. Or maybe they got the results back. And this is where it gets really interesting, which is like, okay, what are the what are the false positive and false negatives of that test? So you can see like every step that I just named is a step that is very difficult to model. Mm -hmm. So I said in my first blog post, and I think this is true, there's there's a, a, a trite saying in a statistics, which is every model is wrong, but some are useful. And <laughs> I like... And I said, I sincerely hope my model's wrong because it's saying bad things. But I hope it's useful in that it incentivizes us slash wakes us up to the fact that this can get really bad. So let's mm -hmm. do something about it and let's make the model wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you can't add these little nuances. Like I think, for instance, the bump you just saw in New York can be explained in two ways. One is it went really high and you know Cuomo came out and said... Uh, you know what, we're doing better. And I scratched my head because I was like, wait a second, how do you do better? Like, you didn't lock down. I mean, it hasn't been that many days. So maybe it's true. I would love for it to be true. Or it could be that there was this backlog of testing and everyone who was sick finally could get their test, rushed and got that test done. And then those tests worked through the system and obviously got added to the case count. And now they're keeping up with it. So that case count looks like it's slowing but actually it just rejoins this other trajectory up. Right. They, and, they, well, they didn't know what they didn't know. Yes. And I don't, I don't have the proof that it is one thing versus the other, but that's something I'm interested in exploring with the data as well. That it may be masking a regular growth rate. Totally. That's, that's are you, I want to finish this second. Are you hopeful right now of the actions people have taken? I mean, you have the federal government saying one thing, you have the president saying one thing. Um, either don't look back on how we handled this or... We're going to get to work by April 12th, which is yeah. two weeks from now. <laughs> I think, uh, okay, so a couple of things. You can't answer whether you're hopeful or not hopeful in aggregate because it totally depends what we're talking about. Here's what makes me not so hopeful. It seems like we have a variety of different strategies depending on what state you live in mm -hmm. instead of one cohesive strategy for the country. Right. What makes me not hopeful is that on Twitter, when I put this stuff out, you've got a bunch of people who write back saying, oh, well, the vaccine's, you know, around the corner next week. And, and these medicines that the president's been talking about, they're just going to work, these drugs, right? Mm -hmm. And by the way, maybe they will. I don't have proof. But there's a lot of misinformation out there about what will and won't work and how quickly. And the thing that discourages me the most is, the lack of understanding, I think, in aggregate uh, from most people about what's possible and what's not possible. 
you know, a vaccine can come two months from now. But I, I told you we're at the worst, you know, in, in the initial model without any interventions in early May. And that's like it's not enough time. Like you don't have enough time to form one of these things, get it through trials and get it into people's hands. So that makes me less hopeful. But what makes me more hopeful is that humans are incredibly resilient and incredibly self-aware slash self-centered. And when I say that, I mean that in a good way. Like we don't want to get sick. So you can reopen the economy, but you know how many people want to go back to work if they're going to get sick? So people work remotely. Mm -hmm. What makes me excited is that the states do have the power to say, you know what? No, we're not going back to work. We're going to extinguish this thing mm -hmm. and we're going to take charge. Um, and I think you're seeing that in places like California and New York and some others. Um, Ohio, yeah. Yeah. So, Maryland. The, you know, it starts to make you think like there are a few inventions in the world that make you scratch your head and just say, wow, this system is built so well. I think most recently, Bitcoin's one of them. You're like, mm -hmm. how did someone figure out the incentive system to make this thing just work, mm -hmm. right? The other one is like, I mean, again, we're talking about the US, but the checks and balances that exist among federal power versus state power, it's like, I don't remember the last time I really thought hard about that balance. Right, yeah. But yeah. like, States' rights, right? Like, I mean, when's the yeah. last? I mean, except except with the racism part, we don't like when they do it that way. You know, I I don't mean to sound like you know someone born in 1983 mm -hmm. because I am, but mm -hmm. I think it's useful to have a generation of people, like if there's a silver lining, and I think there are very few silver linings to this, but if there's any usefulness that our utility that comes out of this, the idea that we understand our democracy and the importance of it even more feels like an incredible opportunity for a lot of us who haven't been through a world war, who haven't been through a civil war, who haven't been through, you know, a national democratic crisis. So again, I like, I, I hope I, I don't wish to have that silver lining. I wish we didn't have that silver lining, but um, I think there are some bits of hope in all of this. And I really do believe we will end up doing the right thing because humans are really, really good at preserving humans, right? Yes, we're cockroaches, Kevin, in case you're interested. <laughs> anyway, we're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Kevin's sister. We're going to talk about what he's doing next and how he thinks tech is dealing with this crisis when we get back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're here with Kevin Systrom, who's, of course, well-known for creating Instagram, along with his partner, Mike Krieger, um, and was running it for a long time until he left uh, re relatively recently. But it's been, what, a year? Has it been a year or more? A little over a year, yeah. It was uh, it was October, so, you know, year in a little bit. Year in a little bit. So what have you been doing since then? What do you, what do you <laughs> besides doing coronavirus yeah. charts that everyone on Twitter likes to slap you around for. Um, what have you been interested in? And then I'd love to get your take on sort of where tech is right now. You and I sure. have talked about this ourselves uh, privately, but the idea of, of where where it is, because it was sort of under siege for very good reasons, with obviously Facebook at the center of it. But how do you think they performed in this crisis? And what do you think is next for the area? But let's start with what you're doing. Yeah. The first thing I'll say is this coronavirus stuff is a week or two of work and and it's been fun and interesting to dive in and see where where I can provide useful a uh, useful view or useful commentary if any mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. but it's very short in terms of the span of time I've been out of uh Instagram I spent most of the first you know 6 to 9 months or so decompressing from it all I mean it was a fairly extreme experience I guess I should say mm -hmm. um yep not only just growing it to, you know, over a billion people that quickly, but also the growth of the company and 
and just all the stuff, you know, that went along with working inside of Facebook and, you know, Facebook obviously had, had a pretty tough time there at the end too. So that, that was pretty crazy. Um, I was ready for, uh, some time off from pure tech and, Mm -hmm. What I did was I basically sat down and I said, what do I want to learn? So, I mean, I did some, you know, I won't call it silly stuff, but stuff that doesn't have to do with work. So I learned to fly and I, I became a pilot and, and you know, I, I tried to be more present with family. I have a daughter who basically I've been able to see grow up uh, because I've been around. Now I have a son. And so a lot of time spent doing that. And then I think going down some dead ends, like, you know, I've started doing some I won't call them dead ends, but they're basically dead ends, like doing some angel investing and realizing, you know, like, I just, I want to be more active than that. Not that mm-hmm. angel investing isn't active. It's just what I love doing is building and problem solving. Right. I, I'm I'm less interested in writing checks and- Pontificating. I mean, there's plenty of pontificating happening in the last week. So I'm not going to say I'm immune right. to that. But um, it's just like, I want to, I like building things. And if anything useful happened through this experience, it was realizing that the stuff I love doing was building and problem solving. And the stuff I didn't love doing was like chasing a buck and trying to invest and, you know, um, so I went really deep on a couple areas and I just decided I was going to try to get good at the state of the art of machine learning and data analysis, because I think no matter what I do next, um, I hope that the, the bedrock of whatever company or organization I build is built on really good data analysis and top of the line machine learning. And you know, so you start off doing that. I'm I'm one of the, I'm a little weird in the sense that I think sometimes people are really good at just gathering teams and making things happen. But like, if I don't understand it myself, and if I can't do at least the initial versions myself, I don't feel like I have the right to found that company. And that's clearly not true. Plenty of people like Steve Jobs didn't know how to build hardware himself necessarily, but he amassed great people to do that. Um, but I just, I don't feel comfortable working on things unless I understand them thoroughly. So my goal was to understand it thoroughly. And then when this coronavirus stuff hit, I had been doing a bunch of data analysis stuff separately and privately and not blogging about it, not not tweeting about it. But when this coronavirus stuff hit, I found that it was the, it was the right moment to both use some of those to apply skills. To what you were doing. And on something that I think people cared about. Yeah. Plus, you know, I basically went off social media for about, you know, a year and a half. And this was a chance just to re-engage and be like, I'm still around. I'm still excited about building stuff and I want to engage again. I have a lot of people out there who are really excited about what Mike and I had built at Instagram and they want, you know, maybe it's not Instagram too, it's probably something else, but uh, they want those same values and those same ways of building those same design sensibilities to go into something new. And so what are you interested in? Is it Instagram too, or is it something <laughs> you're going off in a totally, uh, my guess is somewhere else, correct? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely not going to found please Instagram, invent too. Instagram too. That would be great. No, I think Instagram, <laughs> I, I like it. It hasn't really changed since we left. So I'm feeling, you know, good about that. It feels like it's not frozen in time, but like it, it's got a good, uh, it's got a good base and, and they'll find their way going forward, but it, it's still, I, I like to say when we left, I was like, if I can look back in a few years and the thing's still growing and humming along and the team's still innovating, we'll be in a really good place. I'll, I'll feel good about that. But I, I feel no need to go and do the same thing again or a version of the same thing again. I can't really share exactly what I'm thinking about, but in broad strokes, I had some rules uh, or some boxes to check. The first was that I wanted to work with great people. And of course, everyone says that, but like, I wanted to work with amazing people like Mike again, my co-founder. You know, there are a lot of people I got to work with in the past that, you know, at some point will want to do something new and I want to work with them as well. Um, So having a great team. And that felt like an easy box to check. The second box was it has to be uh, a company that can scale to, you know, hundreds of millions, if not a billion people. So you don't want to do something niche that feels like, you know, okay, great. It's this utility for the small group of people in enterprise software that do this. Do that. Like you, you have to do something relatively basic or at least simple that lots and lots of people can gain a lot of value out of. The third was I wanted it to be something I was personally passionate about because as I've learned through Instagram, you know, I loved photography. So waking up in the middle of the night, having to 
you know, figure out, you know, a crisis. You're not going to do that unless you love what you're doing. Right. Um, so I looked at my interests and I said, okay, what stuff do I really love? I love data. I love analysis. I love, you know, uh, I love social coffee, stuff. Whiskey. I, I love well, coffee. Uh, <laughs> well, I gave up the whiskey. We'll talk about oh, that differently. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. the migraines. Remember we talked about this. Yes. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. exactly. So, um, I, good news is I'm, I'm good. I'm good. So okay. you have to check these boxes. Mm-hmm. And I figured out that there are only a handful of things that check all those boxes. And I started digging into those. So I know that's a, an unsatisfying answer because I'm not telling you the specific idea. But, but is it a consumer product? Are you interested? I mean, you mentioned Bitcoin a second ago, thinking it was super really well designed right. uh, with the right incentives. Is it is it in an area or do you or, or is it data overall, this sort of idea of? So I'll say this, which is um, I think the social side of things makes a lot of sense for someone with my background, Mike's background. It's not that it's social media necessarily, but I'm obsessed with solving things for a lot of people. Right. And you can't do that. uh, You can't check that box if you get into either a small or niche or sometimes enterprise market, not always. Those companies can be massively valuable, but they just don't have the same footprint that I think would be satisfying. So stuff that involves normal people, you know, yeah. in their daily lives, that's the stuff that gets, uh, gets me really you. excited. So, mm-hmm. you know, in that backdrop of right now, I just wrote a column yesterday in the Times saying that like all these big tech companies are going to be bigger than ever when they get out of there, out of here because they're going to have the money to, you know, they have money to lard it over until trouble is over. Uh, the smaller companies are going to have a harder time because their seed corn is going to be eaten. Um, they have a, a tougher time. These companies, of course, have done very well during this, this crisis. Like now Facebook's never been bigger. Google's got huge amounts of views. Amazon's killing it, really, and, and killing, get, doing well in their business. So all these large companies are really, you know, doing really well during this and expected to do very well when they come out of it because they will now, you know, except for maybe a Zoom, which is sort of a weird little phenomenon. We'll see what happens um, with that. Um, it's obviously a valuation conundrum, what's going to happen with them. Mm-hmm. But when you're going to start another small company, which is what you're going to do, how do you think about how they've done in this crisis and then their power coming out? Because I think there'll be a lot less appetite for, for reining them in, too. I think there are a bunch of different lenses here, and I don't want to confuse them. Like, one is just usage. I think there's this sense that because everyone's at home, you know, Zooming, and we're doing this podcast remotely, that all of a sudden all this remote work stuff is going to be worth a ton, and maybe. Um yeah. Me too. I'm on a maybe. You know, like maybe, or maybe it maybe it wakes people up to the utility of it, but it it isn't necessarily this this watershed moment where all of a sudden everything switches. I also think while people use social media more, ad prices likely crater because those companies that keep the thing afloat, you know, aren't spending nearly as much because they're not making as much. Like this is one of the weird things about social media um, in terms of advertising is that people like to think tech is immune, but I'm like, guys, like the people that advertise on Facebook and Instagram and Google and Twitter, like are all the companies that make physical products and and services and sell them to regular people. So like Mm -hmm. tech is not immune to these things. Now, of course, usage probably goes up, but it, I don't know, like given the guidance these companies have put out, it's probably a wash, if not negative in the short run. Um, I think the more interesting lens that you just talked about was the competition angle. And there's mm-hmm. actually this really interesting like sub lens of this, which is before all of this happened, the attention of the government was like basically so not solely, but like in large part about tech's power, you know, tech mm-hmm. broadly. Right. It is not clear to me that that stays number one on the agenda mm-hmm. after this. And part of that is because I think the tech companies are leaning in heavily to participating and helping out. Part of that is that you see people like Bernie, not necessarily, not that Bernie was anti-tech, but Warren, for instance, just she's not in the race anymore. So like you're starting to see this wash and you look at someone like Biden, you say, okay, like, you know, is Biden someone who has this on his agenda? doesn't feel like it. And then, you know, the Trump administration, it certainly feels like they have other things to deal with. So where do you go with this? Like, do you get that same wave that existed before? Or is this like, does it wash away? And then if that's true, how hard is it to found a company? If not only valuation, you know, people are firing people left and right, they're cutting staff, valuations are crashing, 
is that a time where you get a ton of competition for these incumbents? I'm not sure. At the same time, Google was founded in a downturn, and it was. And there are examples. I mean, Instagram was founded, but there weren't strong incumbents. They, you know, it's not the same thing. These there are five, four companies: yeah. Facebook, uh, Google, totally. Amazon. You know, Apple to an extent, but you know, it's it's the biggest among them. But it's not the you know, there very few people do what they do, and it's not they're not necessarily. I mean, but these are massive companies that didn't exist before that really have right. a lot of firepower. You're and, absolutely You know, right. what was interesting was the FTC examining. Small purchases, like the small purchases, like when you look back at Instagram, like right now, Instagram is kind of the star of that, of that of the Facebook ecosystem. You would find it very hard, I think, to start Instagram now. Like, I get, of course, people have changed that kind of thing, but in terms of when you're thinking of being a startup, which is what you are now, which you will be a startup, it's going to be very hard to navigate and not sell or be crushed in some fashion by these companies. It seems like it. I mean, how do you think about that? That's certainly like the popular argument to make and I don't yeah. disagree with all of it. I I um I'll tell you this. Um I think that one it always feels this way like no matter who the incumbents are it always feels like mm-hmm. man Microsoft's Fair. huge how could you possibly start a search engine? You know, search engines are huge how could you possibly start a social network? Uh, I think the mistake people make is thinking that we have these waves that play in the same uh, discipline, meaning there are very few social networks that want to get started after the set of social networks we have, but all of a sudden it'll be something else unrelated to social networking that matters more. And that's where you get new companies coming up without much headwind because, you know, the Clay Christensen just passed away yeah. and, you know, he's famous for the innovators dilemma. It's one of my favorite models. Um, Me too. And, I think it's true. Like you, I don't know what the saying is, but it's like at first you you make fun of them or you write them off, then you mm-hmm. make fun of them, mm-hmm. then they fight you, and then you win. Right? It's not his saying, but it's effectively the same thing. Right. As someone who ran a company and saw other companies starting, that's certainly true. I mean, Snapchat starts and you say, ah, I don't know, disappearing photos for teens, whatever, and then right. all of a sudden you realize, no, wait, like we're actually in the same space, you know? Right. Um, and in that case, or I'm not TikTok, sure they won. Or you see but TikTok just emerging out of yeah, yeah. China. Yeah, TikTok. I mean, who could have thought that after Snapchat, you'd have room for another, you know, massive billion user thing in, in that category? So I think it's both important to TikTok? check the power. Do, um, do you use it? Use it actively? Not really, uh, but I've used it a bunch. And I mean, mm-hmm. I see why people spend so much time on it. I like to read books and stuff. I, I like... Which, <laughs> um, it's funny, actually. Like I was, like started a social media company, but I don't like use social media a lot. So um, yeah. But just to, to your original question, I think that it is both right to check the power of the most powerful, and it is probably wrong to assume that their power is uh, it's complete. Um, because I think what you're going to end up with often what happens is these very large companies are the ones that uh, cause their own downfall. They trip mm-hmm. over their own shoelaces. They don't react to something right. quickly enough. They overcomplicate their products. They smush them. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think that's more likely to happen than just like an oligopoly of of tech companies that are here forever that squish everyone else. Um, but maybe I'm just hopeful in that that way because I, I'm someone who's going to start something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're hopeful about that, but we're all dead from coronavirus, so nobody's going to use it. No, 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 no. Dead, dead and sick are two very different things. Let's be clear. 100%, 100%. Well, Kevin, this has been really helpful. I'm going to ask you one more question. When you think about, when you look at the, the landscape of tech, going really far forward, I ask everyone this question. What's something you've seen that you really are like, wow, that's super. I, I have been writing a lot about climate tech, like the idea around climate tech and, and food tech and health tech. And obviously health tech will be really interesting going forward, which has been problematic for Silicon Valley, a hundred for, for, for reasons I, I'm sort of trying to sort out. Is there one area you think that is something else, like where you may not have expertise in, where you think that's that, 10 years from now, this is going to be something really special? Well, um, someone said this when self-driving cars came out and they were like, man, like who cares about self-driving cars? Like self-driving planes, that's where it's at. And I was like, <laughs> yes. And uh, I think it was actually Sebastian Thune. Um, yeah. And he said that. And I don't think he had started Kitty Hawk. Kitty Hawk's the yeah. his guy. So he yeah, hadn't started at that time. 
the area. So I know I'm like, aside from being a pilot um, mm-hmm. and being slightly, you know, biased in this direction, I think the, the idea, let me put it this way. Often the best ideas start as like super niche things that only people with money can afford, mm-hmm. right? Whether it was the car right. initially, mm-hmm. the telephone, you name yeah. it, right? The only other people I know who fly can afford to fly and it's pretty amazing when you learn to fly and you can just take off and go anywhere in a little plane and be in Los Angeles on your own, just like you were driving, but in an hour and a half instead of whatever it is, six hours from San Francisco. That feels to me like something that everyone should be able to do. And when you start seeing these vertical takeoff and landing companies built, Velos, yeah. right? They seem like a really interesting area that should be everywhere not in a few years, right? Like there are all sorts of problems to solve, whether it's noise, like the power, uh, the power to weight ratio, uh, regulations, right? As a pilot, the airspace system is locked in, call it the 1940s. Yep. And Mm -hmm. it's really hard to change. So it'll be a while. But the idea that everyone could just have one of these someday, that's a future I want to live in. Uh, And you you shouldn't have to have a pilot's license to figure this out and enjoy something like that. You just so, push a button and you get from one place to yeah, the other. Yeah, and, and there are companies that are making a lot of progress on it. So um, that's an area yep, that I'm they super are, excited they are, about. Including Kittyock and some others. Oh, that's cool. All right, Kevin, keep making your charts. Thank I, you. I, all right, when is the next one coming out? Next soon or well, I, more I charts out, coming? I put one out this morning and then I updated some charts. Uh, but if you go to systrom.com, uh, my last name is S-Y-S-T-R-O-M, as in Mary, dot com, uh, you can see it there. And I'm just Kevin at Instagram and Kevin on Twitter. Uh, so great. Yeah, you can find me there. All right, go look at them. They're really interesting, although grim. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. And Kevin just said where you can find him online. If you like, when he is online, now he's back on social media. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you share it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. And special thanks to squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here Wednesday. Tune in then. 